All right, let's talk about William Butler Yeats. Yeats is one of the most significant figures in 20th century literature. Uh, along with James Joyce, he's one of the great titans of Irish literature uh, of ever, and certainly in the 20th century. And we can see with Yeats uh, the beginning of uh, 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 the shift to modernism in 20th century poetry. And I'd like to start with his poem, The Wild Swans at Cool. The trees are in their autumn beauty, the woodland paths are dry. Under the October twilight, the water mirrors a still sky. Upon the brimming water, among the stones, are nine and fifty swans. The nineteenth autumn has come upon me, since I first made my count I saw, before I had, well finished, all suddenly mount and scatter, wheeling in great broken rings upon their clamorous wings. I have looked upon those brilliant creatures, and now my heart is sore. All's changed since I, hearing at twilight the first time on this shore, the bell-beat of their wings above my head, trod with a lighter tread. Unwearied still, lover by lover, they paddle in the cold, companionable streams, or climb the air. Their hearts have not grown old. Passion or conquest, wander where they will, attend upon them still. But now they drift on the still water, mysterious, beautiful, among what rushes will they build, by what lake's edge or pool delight men's eyes, when I awake some day to find that they have flown away. All right. Now, in some ways, this poem has a very strong continuity with the Romantic tradition. Uh, I mean, if you're not in some ways reminded of Tintern Abbey, you should be. This is a poem about a man returning to this vision of nature that he has seen before, and, uh, you know, it's been, in this case, uh, not five years, but 19 uh, since he has seen this. Um, and it, uh, it, like Tintern Abbey, it's marking a difference in him. But unlike Tintern Abbey, this is not about his uh, kind of, of, of communion with nature um, in exactly the same way. Uh, look what he says in the uh, third stanza. Uh, I have looked upon these brilliant creatures, and now my heart is sore. All's changed since I, hearing at twilight the first time on this shore, the bell beat of their wings. He says, I trod, uh, trod with a lighter tread. So there is a change that come over him, uh, but it's one. It, it's almost an entirely negative one. You know, my heart is sore. All is changed. Um, but they have not changed. It says they are unwearied still. Um, their hearts have not grown old. So here it is, is seeing these, these swans at cool. Uh, it, it, they have remained the same. He has gone out and lived in these 19 years and there's been heartache and he doesn't nail it down. The, the, the footnotes, footnotes in this section are particularly odd. Uh, I think kind of showing off how much they know about uh, Yeats's biography rather than trying to illuminate the poems. Uh, certainly a lot had happened to him in those 19 years, but he doesn't specify what it is. That's not the important thing. The important thing is that he can always come back 
and the swans are there, still unwearied, and they are lover by lover. They're in pairs. You know, his heart is is changed. His heart is sore. Um, you know, their hearts have not grown old. Um, passion or conquest wander where they will, attend upon them still. It says, but now they drift on the still water, mysterious, beautiful. Among what rushes will they build? By what lake's edge or pool delight men's eyes when I awake some day to find that they have flown away? So it's not only that they're steady while he is not, but also they're going to be gone. And in fact, he remembers, earlier he says, he, when he counted them, there was this, they would suddenly mount and scatter, wheeling in bro- great broken rings. Uh, so this relationship with nature is very, very different than the romantic relationship with nature. He's not talking about, as, as Tender Nabby would, about how it uh, he is is as grown and now has a deeper appreciation of nature, uh, it's much more melancholy than that. Nature is out there. It is beautiful. It is it, it, uh, it uh, is you know unwearied, but it's also somehow inaccessible. I mean, he can he can watch it. He can see it, but he knows that these birds will fly away at some point. Uh, that he he is the one who is fleeting. Nature is out there permanent. Uh, and so it's almost a, a break with nature. Uh, these swans are not something that stir something within him. They make him see his own inadequacy. Uh, so that's a good example of the way that Yeats is taking romantic traditions in poetry, but giving a much more uh, uh, modern twist to them. Uh, that's not a, this is not a sentiment that a romantic poet would have put into a poem. Or a look at an even earlier poem by Yeats, The Lake Isle of Innisfree. I will arise and go now and go to Innisfree, and a small cabin build there of clay and wattles made. Nine bean rows will I have there, a hive for the honey bee, and live alone in the bee-loud glade. Now, I've often uh, talked about how in a poem, uh, it always starts with some kind of uh, disequilibrium. Something has happened. And it's only implied here, I will arise and go now. Well, that means that previously he has been uh, he's been down. He's, he's sitting or lying down and now has to arise or he's been asleep uh, and needs to go somewhere. He's been stationary. And where will he go? He'll go to this isle, go to the Lake Isle of Innisfree. Uh, And it seems a simple life that he has there, a cabin, uh, beans, honeybees. And I shall have some peace there. That suggests that he doesn't have peace now. That's why he's arising and going. For peace comes dropping slow, dropping from the veils of the morning to where the crickets sing. There midnight's all a glimmer, and noon a purple glow, and evening full of the linnet's wings. Now this is a similar kind of imagery you might get in a romantic poem. There is this kind of this love of nature, uh, the, the peace that he's having there. If you remember the, the, the way that Wordsworth rejected the, the bustle of London and preferred the you know, beauty of being out solitary in nature. 
I will arise and go now, for always, night and day, I hear lake water lapping with low sounds by the shore, while I stand on the roadway, on, a pa on the pavement's gray, I hear it in the deep heart's core. So, again, this is kind of a, very much in the Romantic tradition. He's there, and he rises and goes there, and where is he? He tells us where he is. He's in the roadway or the on the pavement's gray. Uh, so this is gray pavement, not the beautiful lake isle. And he can hear, he can always, night and day, hear the lake water lapping. Uh, so again, like a romantic poet, that, that those feelings and memories of nature are always with him. And then I hear it in the deep heart's core. This is the very core of his being. This is what he wants, where he wants to be, where in some way he always is. Uh, he, he will arise and go there. Also, of course, Innisfree is an actual place in Ireland. Uh, and Yeats was a poet poet who was very much rooted in the landscape of Ireland. Uh, he was he was kind of fiercely Irish in in his poetry, and this is an example of it. This is not uh, uh, this is not a place that the Romantic poets would have gone because they weren't Irish. Uh, so that also in that uh, that sense of a particular place is very strong throughout Yeats's poetry. Now, there's also quite a lot of autobiographical content in Yeats's poetry. I mean, I suppose in some ways you could say there always is, but it's very uh, much put forward in Yeats. Look at his poem, No Second Troy. Why should I blame her that she filled my days with misery or that she would of late have taught the ignorant to ignorant men most violent ways or hurled the little streets upon the great had they but courage equal to desire? Now, though the poem does not say it, it's it's we know that the woman he's talking about, the woman he says I'm not going to blame, was Maud Gunn, who was a, an actress and a uh, an an activist in the Irish Revolution, and whom he had a passionate affair with, but who always refused to marry him, uh, and says, and notice it is is a question: Why? Why should I blame her? Um, and then he gives all the reasons why he might blame her. She filled my days with misery. Uh, she taught ignorant men violent ways. These are the Irish revolutionaries who went out and killed people. Uh, hurled the little streets upon the great. That is, the, the, the common man were uh, in revolution against the, uh, the ruling class. Uh, and had they but courage equal to desire... Uh, that is, they wanted to do it, but maybe they weren't brave enough to, to have the revolution work. What could have made her peaceful with a mind that nobleness made simple as fire, with beauty like a tightened bow, a kind that is not natural in an age like this, being high and solitary and most stern? So again, these next few lines are again a question. What could have made her peaceful? So, well, I can't blame her for not being peaceful. What could have made her peaceful? And he, so he diagnoses why she couldn't have been peaceful. Again, a mind, it's noble, and these beautiful images, nobleness made simple as fire. All right, fire, well, again, fire is very simple, but it's also very deadly and destructive. 
beauty like a tightened bow, right? A bow tightened, ready to just snap, right? Uh, it's not natural in an age like this. High, solitary, and stern. So the first five lines of the poem have been one sentence, which is a question. The second five lines of the poem have been one sentence, that's a question. And then we get a final two lines of the poem. Each one of them is a one-line long question. So this is all very kind of artfully uh, constructed. Why, what could she have done being what she is? So, again, this idea that you can't blame, you know, a leopard can't change its spots. You can't, how can you blame her? That's who she was. She couldn't have been any different. Um, says, was there another Troy for her to burn? And so here we get in with the, uh, the, the title, No Second Troy. Well, Troy is, of course, the, the, the site of the, the great Greek epic, the Iliad, the Trojan War, where the Greeks went to fight with the Trojans to bring back Helen of Troy. Uh, well, that's a very interesting analogy because it makes Maud Gunn, it makes her of the poem, like Helen of Troy. Um, that, you know, she, she would have had to do, have done something and like Helen of Troy, she would have brought down a whole civilization with her, her beauty, her sternness, all of that. It, it puts her in a mythological context. Uh, now, a couple of things about this. First of all, again, it's very much an autobiographical poem. He's talking about how he feels, and, and in many of his poems, you can see him working out his very complicated emotions about Maud Gunn, how he admired her and yet wished she hadn't been so admirable in some ways and had just loved him. Um, also, and this is something that Yeats would do throughout his, his poetic career, using the classical allusions, using the allusions to Troy and Helen of Troy uh, to give an extra sense of resonance and depth to what he was talking about. That also happens quite a lot in modernist poetry. They use a particular kind of allusion to mythology. And Yeats, in, in other poems, it wasn't just classical mythology, a great deal of the Irish folklore and mythology he would also bring into his poetry. Now let's look at another poem of his that is very autobiographical, Easter 1916. Now this is the uh, commemorating the Easter Rising of 1916. This was the Irish rebellion that happened that was uh, violently put down and the leaders were all put to death. So he's talking about a specific historical event and one where Yeats knew most of the people who were involved in that. He had, he had distanced himself at that point from the revolutionary politics, but he knew these people. Um, so this is his tribute poem to them and to their failed revolution. I have met them at close of day, coming with visit, vivid faces from counter or desk among gray 18th century houses. I have passed with a nod of the head or polite, meaningless words, or lingered a while and said polite, meaningless words, and thought before I had done of a mocking tale or a jibe to please a companion around the fire at the club, being certain that they and I but lived where motley is born. So now this first stanza He's talking about this is the this is, was the way he related to these people 
before the revolution. Uh, he, he would see them. Again, he was acquainted with them. Uh, there was a nod of the head, polite, meaningless words. There wasn't really anything. You know, and it, it, he would see uh, we were where motley is worn. That's where we're kind of jesters. We're clowns. This was all kind of a joke. He would come up with a clever thing to say at the club um, to these people. And then the end of the stanza, all changed, changed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. So now all of that that kind of nice, polite, meaningless word world is gone. There's a what is a terrible beauty, a wonderful paradoxical image, terrible beauty. Now in the next stanza, Yeats is giving a catalog of the people who were involved in this Easter 1916 revolution. That woman's days were spent in ignorant goodwill, her nights in argument until her voice grew shrill. What voice more sweet than hers when, young and beautiful, she rode to Harriers? So here's, again, these kind of quick flashing portraits of these people, this woman who kind of was arguing politics. Um, next, this man had kept a school and rode our winged horse, a winged horse Pegasus, the, it's a symbol of poetic inspiration, uh, this other, his helper and friend, was coming into his force. He might have won fame in the end, so sensitive his nature seemed, so daring and sweet his thought. This other man, I had dreamed a drunken, vainglorious lout. He had done most bitter wrong to some who were near my heart, yet I number him in the song. He, too, has resigned his part in the casual comedy. He, too, has been changed in his turn, transformed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. So now he's getting more specific about these people, and all of these people are dead. He's commemorating them. And some of them he seems to he seems critical of, the woman with the shrill voice, this uh, drunken lout. Others would seem to be, you know, a school teacher, can't get better than that, uh, and a poet, uh, and a promising poet. And all of them, even the drunken lout, is have been changed, have become martyrs to this cause. Now, the uh, the footnotes will tell you who all of these people are, which is kind of historically very interesting, but not important for the poem. If Yeats had meant you to know exactly who they were, he could have told you. Uh, it's important that they are kind of anonymous. We just get these flashes of them. Now the next stanza. Hearts with one purpose alone through summer and winter seem enchanted to a stone to trouble the living stream. So he begins with this metaphor, the hearts with one purpose alone. Uh, so they become concentrated, focused, hard, like a stone that troubles the living stream. So the way that a, a rock in the middle of the stream will, will cause uh, ripples, uh, that's what they were doing. They were trouble, troubling, the living, troubling the living stream. The horse that comes from the road, the rider, the birds that range from cloud to tumbling cloud, minute by minute, they change. A shadow of cloud on the stream changes minute by minute. A horse hoof slides on the brim, and a horse plashes within it. 
The long-legged moor hens dive, the hen to moorcock's call. Minute by minute they live, the stones in the midst of all. So amid all of this, uh, this living stream, all these things that are changing, there's this, it, there's this stone that won't change, that fiercely refuses, is you know, focused one purpose alone. And he continues that metaphor into the next and final stanza. Too long a sacrifice can make a stone of the heart. Oh, when may it suffice? So being, you know, again, this this focus, this drive, and this is similar to the way he was critical of Maud Gunn in No Second Troy, they've made, they've turned their hearts to stone. Uh, how, when, when would that suffice? This is heaven's part, our part, to murmur name upon name, as a mother names her child when sleep at last has come on limbs that had run wild. Uh, it's a beautiful image. Now, murmuring name by name, this is the commemoration. This is, again, the catalog saying the names of the people who have died. Now, this is a common ceremony. You see this in, uh, war. you know, the, the Vietnam War Memorial is a list of names. Uh, on the, the anniversary of 9-11, uh, one of the ceremonies they have is reading out the names of the people who died. And his image for that, murmuring the names like a mother names her child when it, when sleep at last has come on limbs that had run wild. So that's an image of death. They're like a child who's been running crazy all day, finally exhausted himself and just collapsed and is sleeping. And the mother calls his name. And that's what's happened to them. After all this wild revolutionary activity, they are at rest now. Uh, what is it but nightfall? No, no, not night, but death. Was it needless death after all? For England may keep faith for all that is done and said. So he's questioning, well, is, was, there, was there death needless? Might, might England, you know, England said that they were going to give us independence after World War I, and, you know, that hasn't come to pass. And he goes on, we know their dream, enough to know, they dreamed and are dead. So all of the political considerations almost kind of pass away. He says, we know what their dream was. They dreamed it and they are dead. And what if excess of love bewildered them till they died? Love of their country, excess of love. I write it out in, in a verse. McDonough and McBride and Connolly and Purse. Now... And in time to be, wherever green is worn, are changed, changed utterly, a terrible beauty is born. So this is the uh, tribute that Yeats makes to the revolution of the, the, the failed revolution of the Irish. And he sees it as, again, it's, it's a transformation, it's a change, but he's also very critical of it. It's not something like, this is not a propaganda poem. Uh, this is a much more reflective poem about the nature of sacrifice, making a stone of the heart, uh, what's happened to them. They've been transformed into a terrible beauty. It's not a, you know, that, that's a terrible, is a bad word. It's a terrible beauty. 
Uh, so you see a lot of ambivalent feelings that Yeats has about this, which in fact he did about uh, about uh, Irish politics. Uh, but it's it's his way of of contemplating that in poetry. Now I'd like to look at Yeats's most famous poem, probably, The Second Coming. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. So, the first image, turning this, this turning, this uh, cycle, uh, a gyre is a spiral, and it's widening. It's, it's uh, like a like the spiral does. It, it starts at the center and spirals outward, turning and turning. The falcon cannot hear the falconer. So a, a falcon, it is, falconing was you know a way of, of, of you know you train a, a a bird like a falcon to hunt for you. Uh, a falconer would do that. But as the bird is circling farther and farther out, he can't hear the falconer. the The falcon is out of control. That widening gyre is widened so far. There's no control. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. So, again, this is an image of things spinning out of control. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. And that wonderful adjective, mere anarchy, it's not, it's, just, it's very, it's common, it's dull, but it's, it's anarchy. There's no order. Uh, everything's falling apart, no center. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere... The ceremony of innocence is drowned. So, a blood-dimmed tide and drowned, the idea of kind of this, over, this overwhelming and a ceremony of innocence. Uh, all of these things are falling apart. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. So the image here is of a world falling apart. This is very much a modernist idea or a reflection. And much of modern modernist literature comes as a reaction to the the horrors of the early 20th century. Uh, world War One was a war where, you know, this years and years of trench warfare, chemical warfare, uh, senseless brutality that seemed to amount to nothing. Uh, it really shook the kind of Victorian faith in the idea of progress, uh, that everything is getting better and better, and, you know, with the Industrial Revolution, soon we'll have no war and no disease, and it'll be a paradise. Uh, well, the 20th century very quickly found that that's not how it was going to be. Uh, and this is the kind of sense that so much, and we saw that in Heart of Darkness, actually, uh, that idea of an incomprehensible horrible, the horror, uh, the world that you, you, where, as he says, the uh, things fall apart and the center cannot hold. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Uh, and again, your, your footnote gives you, gives you an historical reference for that. But uh, the point is that you don't need a historical reference. Uh, you, you can look out your window today and see that that's the case. So the second stanza of the second coming. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. 
So here, things are getting worse and worse. He says, well, well, there's got to be some revelation of this, the, the second coming, the second coming of Christ. This is predicted in, in the Bible, in the book of Revelations. Uh, Christ has died and been resurrected, but he will return to earth in his second coming. He will, it will be the apocalypse. He will uh, judge the earth and create a, a, a new heaven and a new earth. Um, so he says, that may, that's what's coming. The second coming is at hand. The second coming. Hardly are those words out when a vast image out of Spiritus Mundi troubles my sight. So he's responding to that idea, the second coming. And Spiritus Mundi is his his word for the, the, the world soul, the, um, the kind of collective unconscious uh, is the way that the, the psychologist Jung would put it. Uh, there are these images that are buried and, and central to our culture. Then uh, that comes, an image from that comes to his sight. Somewhere in the sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun, is moving its slow thighs. So you get this image. It's out. It's in the desert. This is a very biblical imagery, right? You know, kind of like the, the uh, wandering in the desert, the prophets out in the sands of the desert. There's a shape with a lion body and the head of a man. Well, that's an image like the Sphinx, right? You've got a, a lion body, a man's head, and the gaze is blank and pitiless as the sun. Right, blank. There's nothing there, and it's pitiless, the way the sun is in the desert. Um, there's nothing, uh, uh, no human feeling in it. It's just blank and pitiless. It's moving its slow thighs, while all about it, real shadows of the indignant desert birds. So you get, the, again, this beautiful image, the, the, the birds wheeling around it, and they're indignant, they're angry. This, uh, this shape with a lion's body and a man's head is, is somehow unnatural. They're, they don't like it. They're kind of swarming around it. The darkness drops again. So he's had this moment, this vision that troubled his sight. Now it, uh, it goes away. The darkness drops again. But now I know that 20 centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. Now, 20 centuries, 2,000 years, he's talking about, he's going back to the birth of Christ. 2,000 years ago, uh, there was uh, this stony sleep between then and then this rocking cradle. It says, and what rough beast, it's our come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. So this is, not an, this is not the triumphal image of the second coming that you get in Revelations. This is something monstrous. And look at the, again, the words he uses, vexed, nightmare, a rough beast, this lion, sphinx image. Uh, it's our come round at last, slouches toward Bethlehem. Of course, Bethlehem is where the where Jesus was born the first time, so it's slouching there to be born. And 
it's also, notice this is a question. He doesn't say, I know what it is. He says, what, that was a vision. I don't understand what it is, but it's something terrible. It's a rough beast slouching towards Bethlehem. Uh, So this image of a world where things fall apart, the center cannot hold, and well, oh, we'll have a second coming, and that will fix everything. Well, no, it looks like this second coming is going to make it even worse. Um, this is going to be the you know slouching towards Bethlehem. Uh, th- this doesn't seem like it will be you know kind of peace on earth, goodwill to men uh, that happens this time. Uh, it's it's a monster, a rough beast. Uh, now there's a lot that you could say about uh, Yeats's theory of human history. He wrote a book called The Vision, in which he had an elaborate uh, theory of of culture and history, and it had to do with these gyres, these spirals, these cycles. Uh, And he believed that, you know, this poem reflects some of that. But the truth is that very few people today know any of that, unless they're students of Yeats, and yet the poem is still very effective. It has this nightmarish quality, uh, again, a quality about capturing something about the the anxiety and the terror of the modern age, of things falling apart, of a center that cannot hold, and something even worse coming through. Uh, It's it's a very dark, very apocalyptic poem. Now, as I've said, The Second Coming is, is one of perhaps Yeats' most famous poem. It certainly has some very famous lines in it. Uh, when he originally published it, it came at the end of a one of his poetry collections, but it wasn't the very last poem in that collection. It was followed by A Prayer for My Daughter. And I think it's very important to read those two poems together because the A Prayer for My Daughter is a kind of a counterweight to The Second Coming, though it's... Uh, not as well known as as, uh, the second coming. So a prayer for my daughter. Once more the storm is howling, and half hid under the cradle hood and cover lid, my child sleeps on. There is no obstacle but Gregory's wood and one bare hill, whereby the haystack and roof-leveling wind, bred on the Atlantic, can be stayed. But for an hour I have walked and prayed, because of the great gloom that is in my mind. So this begins, it kind of picks up where the second coming left off. There's a storm howling, and there's no protection. There's a little bit of wood and one hill to protect them from the winds coming in from the Atlantic. And so he is, and it begins the second stanza, I have walked and prayed for this young child an hour, um, and heard the sea wind scream upon the tower, and under the arches of the bridge, and scream in the elms above the flooded stream, imaging in excited reverie, imagining in excited reverie that the future years had come, dancing to a frenzied drum out of the murderous innocence of the sea. So, so far, this is sounding like a, a kind of a, this is the apocalyptic storm you might expect to follow the, the second coming, the, the rough beast slouching towards Bethlehem to be born. But then he begins his, his prayer for his daughter, what he wants for his daughter. May she be granted beauty, and yet not beauty to make a stranger's eye distraught or hers before her looking glass, for such... 
being made beautiful overmuch, consider beauty a sufficient end, lose natural kindness and maybe the heart-revealing intimacy that chooses right and never find a friend. So he wants her to be beautiful, but he's aware, well, you know, I don't want her to be so beautiful that it's it's distracting, that she thinks beauty is the only important thing, that she's in love with her own looking glass. And he expands on this idea. Helen, Helen of Troy, being chosen, found life flat and dull, and later had much trouble from a fool. Her husband, she married a, a fool, Menelaus, who in uh, Paris uh, kidnapped her and took her to Troy, and that caused no end of trouble. Uh, but again, that was a problem. Her, he was too beautiful, which caused problems. And the great queen, this is Venus, or Aphrodite, the goddess of love, that rose out of the spray... Now notice he's talked about this storm coming out of the sea and this image of of Aphrodite emerging from the sea kind of echoes that. Being fatherless, could have have her way, yet chose a bandy-legged smith for man. So Venus married uh, Vulcan, the the god of the forge, who was uh, uh, crippled, bandy-legged. It's certain that fine women eat a crazy salad with their meat, whereby the horn of plenty is undone. So here, these women, uh, uh, they didn't marry well. Helen and Venus both married beneath them. Uh, Again, the the horn of plenty, uh, that image from, you know, you see it at Thanksgiving, uh, is undone. All of that, and yet they chose the wrong thing. He doesn't want that for his daughter. In courtesy, I'd have her chiefly learned Hearts are not not had as as a gift, but hearts are earned by those that are not entirely beautiful. So he's saying again, not being not entirely beautiful, she has to have courtesy. That's is just as important, maybe more important than beauty. Um, and he goes on to the next stanza. May she become a flourishing hidden tree that all her thoughts may like the linnet be, and have no business but dispensing round their magnanimities of sound. Not but in merriment begin a chase, not but in merriment a quarrel. Oh, may she live like some green laurel, rooted in one dear perpetual place. So this image of what he wants his daughter to be is like a a, a, a hidden flourishing tree, a rooted laurel. He wants her to be in, in one particular place, not you know running around all the time. Um, that's what he wants for her. Um, he says, my mind, because the minds I have, that I have loved, the sort of beauty I have approved, prosper but little, has dried up of late, yet knows that to be choked with hate may well be of all evil chances chief. If there's no hatred in a mind, assault and battery of the wind can never tear the linnet from the leaf. So here he says, again, the, the, he talks about the, uh, the idea of hate, choked with hate, uh, a mind that is choked with hate 
is that's the worst chance that you could have. And if there you you don't have the hate, then all of the battery of wind, remember this this poem started out with this deadly storm coming in from the Atlantic. It says none of that can ever chase the linnet the limnet linnet from the leaf. That is the birds from the tree. That's what he wanted it to be, right? A bird, just a beautiful tree, magnanimous in its sound, uh, always merry, whether it's uh, quarreling or not. Is an intellectual hatred is the worst. So let her think opinions are accursed. Have I not seen the loveliest woman born out of the mouth of plenty's horn because of her opinionated mind batter that horn and every good b- uh, good by quiet natures understood for an old bellows full of angry wind? Now that's another allusion to Maud Gunn, who he thought was the most beautiful woman born. And again, that image of Plenty's horn. So here she had all this bounty, all this uh, things she could have. She turned her back on it for an intellectual hatred, for an ideology. Uh, and this, again, angry wind, mere words. Again, that image of the, the storm. Considering that all hatred driven hence, the soul recovers radical innocence and learns at last that it is self-delighting. So when you get rid of all of that hate, the, the, you be, you recover your innocence, and you become self-delighting, self-appeasing, self-affrighting, and that its own sweet will is heaven's will. She can, though every face should scowl and every windy quarter howl, or every bellows burst, be happy still. So she, if she has this inner peace, if she, this innocence, this lack of hatred, this joy, this self-delight, then it doesn't matter if the wind is howling out there. All of those bellows bursting, the angry winds uh, coming in from the Atlantic, none of that is going to matter if she has that. And may her bridegroom bring her to a house where all's accustomed, ceremonious, for arrogance and hatred or the wares peddled in the thoroughfares. How but in custom and in ceremony are innocence and beauty born? So now he brings in these two concepts, custom and ceremony. He says that's how innocence and beauty are born. Now he's already talked about the specific kind of beauty he's talking about, and he said that the lack of hate gives innocence. Ceremonies a name for the rich horn. He's talked about the horn of plenty. So the, the ceremonies, the rituals that we have, that's where all of the, that's where the horn of plenty is. That's where our bounty in life comes from. And custom for the spreading laurel tree. He's already given that image of her of a rooted tree. So the, the customs and the ceremonies, this is an idea, this is what protects against those uh, those dangerous winds, that storm that is coming for you, is you have ceremony and custom, that you're rooted, uh, lacking hate. And the idea is making a, it, it's, this is not the kind of grand universal themes that you got in the second coming. This is not about what's happening to the whole world. This is what's happening, a prayer for his daughter. He wants his daughter to live this happy, fulfilled life, and he knows she needs to be rooted in custom and in ceremony. And so much of that, again, the idea that the center cannot hold in the previous poem, uh, the, the modern modernists uh, felt, as people did in the early 20th century, 
that those things were being lost. Uh, the, the, we don't have those old traditions to hang on to. And he says, but if you do, if you have them, uh, you can be a rooted tree. You can have the horn of plenty. Um, and I think this poem is very much Yeats's answer to the second coming. Yes, there are all these horrible things in the world. There's this incomprehensible world that we don't understand. There are these terrible things. But there's also custom and ceremony. There's beauty and innocence and and it's hate that causes all of those problems. If we can get rid of that, we can have this this uh, rooted laurel, uh, this uh, horn of plenty. Um, anyway, I think it's a beautiful juxtaposition with the second coming. Now, we're going to continue next time with some of uh, Yeats's poems, uh, Leda and the Swan, Sailing to Byzantium, Among Schoolchildren, Byzantium, Crazy Jane Talks with the Bishop, Lapis Lazuli, and The Circus Animal's Desertion. And these poems come from the near the end of Yeats's life. Yeats was uh, unusual in among poets in that uh, he did not kind of fade away as, in his career the way Wordsworth did. Wordsworth is famous mostly for the poems he wrote when he was a young man. Yeats, uh, is, his artistic reputation grew as he got older, and he is in some ways a great poet of old age. So look at the theme of old age in these poems. Uh, what is the, how does an old man uh, react in this modernist world, uh, and what does he do? Uh, and also, look at the way that he uses allusions. Uh, we've already seen some of that here. We'll see some more of it, the way he talks about the classical world and how he integrates that into his poetry. Uh, all right, well, I thank you for your attention, and I will talk to you more about William Butler Yeats next time.